It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Let me begin by saying I know there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans in this country who feel disappointed and uh, discouraged or even a little bit angry about the court's decision today on student debt. And I must admit I do, too. For the second time in one week, President Joe Biden criticized the decision of the Supreme Court on Friday, saying the court misinterpreted the Constitution when it tossed out his plan to forgive the student debt of more than 40 million Americans. I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program was a mistake, was wrong. The justices, again voting 6-3 to three along ideological lines, sided with six Republican-led states that sued to challenge the roughly $40 billion program. Writing for the court's conservatives, Chief Justice John Roberts said the administration was seizing the power of the legislature, echoing what he said at the oral arguments. I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. Justice Elena Kagan wrote for the three liberal justices in dissent and said it was the court that was making national policy in place of Congress and the executive branch. Congress used its voice in enacting this piece of legislation. All this business about executive power, I mean, we worry about executive power when Congress hasn't authorized the use of executive power. Here, Congress has authorized the use of executive power in an emergency situation. My guest is constitutional law expert Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. The key here was whether any of the challengers had standing or a stake in the case. Did the chief justice use a sort of attenuated theory to find standing here? The chief justice decided that the loan processing agency from Missouri was the only entity amongst many that had standing to contest the student loan forgiveness of the Biden administration. And the court reasoned that the loan processing agency stood to lose $40 million, that the processing agency was part of Missouri, and that traditionally any kind of profits that the agency acquired were used to fund education programs in Missouri. And in part, I'm sympathetic to the theory, and I think under federal law, that the equivalence of the loan processing agency and Missouri for purposes of a lawsuit would have been upheld. But I think that the dissent made a very strong argument that, though that quite counts this way, that under Missouri law, that the loan processing agency was distinct from the state. And the dissent noticed that the loan processing agency did not file suit. The loan processing agency was incorporated separately. And that given those indicia, 
for purposes of Missouri law that you could treat the loan processing agency as being a separate entity, and because it didn't sue, the court should not have taken this case. So I don't think this was a clear-cut case. The court did not say that any other entity had standing, and it made at least a colorable claim for the fact that this agency was sufficiently connected to Missouri in order to bring forward the case. Though I think the dissent could have even been on stronger ground by analyzing Missouri law in greater depth, which the majority failed to do. Once again, we're hearing about the major questions doctrine. That's a new legal concept that the court has used to limit the power of the executive branch. How did Roberts use it in this case? He used it here by saying there are two words in the statute that were key, and the statute that was enacted in the wake of 9-11 gave the power to the Secretary of Education to waive or modify student debt obligations in an emergency. The emergency is COVID. And so the question is whether canceling up to 20000 in debt per individual, does that constitute either a waiver or a modification? I think the court was clearly right in saying it wasn't a modification. And then the question is, what about waiver? And here, I think you can look at it in two different ways. To the majority, the idea of a waiver is sort of more of a modest effort to look at a procedural requirement, look at a timing issue, maybe include forbearance for a while. But the idea of waiver isn't simply cancellation. And to back that up, the majority says, look, if Congress wanted to allow the agency to create a new rule, namely the loan cancellation, that would affect 40 million people. And for $400 billion, it would have said so clearly. But that is how the court employed the so-called major questions doctrine to say that, you know, Congress needs to make these kinds of decisions if it wants to have an administrative rule of such vast importance. And the dissent retorted, and I think, well, it's like, look, this is emergency legislation. In an emergency, when the Secretary of Education has to face it, they have to take steps that are going to make radical changes. And indeed, what I thought was very uh, well put by the dissent is that the power to even forbear a loan, in other words, to say, don't pay it back for a long time, already cost the government $100 billion. So even forbearance, which I think everybody would agree had been used by both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, would have been consistent with the statutory scheme. So is cancellation that much more? But to the majority, it was one step too far. They were okay with forbearance, but they drew the line, that idea that by waiving a requirement, Congress did not intend that the Department of Education could actually cancel debt for so many people with such a large impact on the economy. During the COVID pandemic, the court thwarted Biden's agenda several times on the rent moratorium, on trying to get people vaccinated at large employers. I mean, this was expected, wasn't it, no matter what the price tag of the program was? If we think about the billions and trillions of dollars that Congress passed for relief in the COVID era, this idea of being able to cancel $400 billion of debt doesn't seem as extravagant as the majority would make it. But it is significant, and I think we have to you know, recognize that that's a huge impact upon our economy. And I think the answer in this case boils down to one's view of administrative power. If one thinks that Congress traditionally has given administrative agencies the power to change for the times, 
to evolve and respond to emergencies, as in this case, then the idea of congressional delegation of authority to modify and waive prior requirements in an emergency empowers the agency to make that judgment subject to a congressional override. And that would be the position that the dissent took. On the other hand, if you're suspicious of administrative power and don't think that administrators should make decisions that have such a wide impact on the economy, then you'll read delegations more narrowly and say Congress could not have conceived that the agency could have wielded such vast authority to the extent of a $400 billion impact on the economy. So what's at stake here is just your view of the wisdom of administrative agencies. As you mentioned, Robert said the administration was seizing the power of the legislature by trying to cancel so much student debt. But isn't the court seizing the power of the executive branch and the legislature by throwing out the plan? Well, that's precisely what the dissent charged. And indeed, they were pre-testing in this case. And they've been civil in some cases, but uh, Justice Kagan and Chief Justice uh, Roberts exchanged pointed barbs in this case, which doesn't bode well for their uh, ability to get along in the court in the future. Maybe it is good that they're taking a break right now. But yeah, I mean, to the dissent, Congress made the call. We want the agency to have the discretion in an emergency to take steps that are important in order to help preserve individuals who were saddled with student debt. And so the dissent, Congress had made the call, and the agency was just acting consistent with that delegation of authority. Okay, Hal, you're going to stay with me. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law, and we'll talk about a third decision down ideological lines that dealt a setback to LGBTQ rights. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. On the last day of Pride Month, the Supreme Court's conservative majority dealt a setback to LGBTQ rights in this country. In another 6-3 to three vote down ideological lines, the court ruled that a Christian website designer doesn't have to create wedding pages for same-sex couples, carving out a free speech exception to Colorado's anti-discrimination law, a distinction brought out by Justice Brett Kavanaugh during the oral arguments. How do you characterize website designers? Uh, are they more like the restaurants and the jewelers and the tailors, or are they more like uh, you know, the publishing houses and the other uh, free speech analogs? The court's three liberals blasted the ruling, with Justice Sonia Sotomayor saying in her dissent that this is a first for the court. This would be the first time in the court's history correct, that it would say that a business open to the public, that it could refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion, 
uh, or sexual orientation. I've been talking to Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. Hal, how much of a blow is this to LGBTQ rights? First of all, it's a symbolic blow. There's no question that the fact that the Supreme Court is putting its stamp in some ways on discrimination just a couple of years after Oberfell recognized the constitutionality of gay marriage is definitely a body blow. In terms of making a practical difference, that's a little bit unclear. I mean, what I think this case reveals is the lack of wisdom of taking a case pre-enforcement that the court didn't need to take. In this case, the web designer has never designed a website yet for a marriage, has never been asked to do a website for a gay couple, and we don't know if she ever would be asked to do a website for a gay couple. The court simply didn't need to get involved in this case, and in general, these kind of pre-enforcement cases where there are murky issues lingering, courts stay their hands. So the fact that the court took this case, I think, is lamentable, and it may end up with very unfortunate law. The difficulty in my mind in this case is where is the expressive conduct? The court has assumed that creating a website has a lot of First Amendment content to it, and indeed it relied upon a stipulation, kind of an admission by the state of Colorado, that there was expressive conduct at play here. I don't see it. Maybe there would be in some context you'd have some kind of First Amendment interests involved here, in which case the question of First Amendment might arise. Generally, I think the presumption strongly should be that when you are incorporated, you must act to give goods and services to the public, just as you would if you're a restaurant or a hotel or a gas station. And so the court waded into very tumultuous waters, really for no reason at all, in my view. What's the line What other establishments can find a way to refuse service to gay people by saying it's expression? Right, and we don't know. And that's the point that I think is really frightening about this case. I mean, what if you're a caterer? What if you're a photographer for the wedding, a set designer, right? To what extent then you can say, I have my gifts here, I have my creative energies, I don't want to use those to help a message to which I disagree. And that is the tricky line that the court has set up. And it didn't give any kind of guidance, really, to lower courts to figure out when that kind of expressive conduct should be protected and when it shouldn't. And I'm concerned because, again, the creativity that was intrinsic to web design is pretty thin, in my view. I mean, the court has opened a can of worms in trying to reconcile public accommodation laws with the expressive viewpoint of those who are required to engage in business and not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, race, religion, and sex. This is supposed to be about speech rights. The court took it and said, we're going to consider speech rights, not religious rights. But it seems like it's just another in a long line of decisions where the Roberts Court puts the rights of religious groups and individuals ahead of every other right. I mean, again, the court explicitly did not address the religious aspects of this. But I do agree with you that the court probably would say now, as opposed to when they decided the Masterpiece Cake case, you know, five, six years ago, that if the website designer had refused to work with the gay couple for religious reasons, they might have even had a stronger case. But what is troubling here is it's not just limited to religion. Right. I mean, we can have First Amendment disagreements with Zionists, with Muslim organizations. We could have First Amendment disagreements with the right to life movement. Who knows where this could end up? And the idea of a public accommodation law is take your First Amendment views elsewhere 
And if you engage in business in the public for lodging and for dining and construction or whatever, put your own thoughts to the back because here we are engaging in public commerce. And that's what Colorado had decided. Some say that this ruling could undercut protections for racial minorities and women as well as LGBTQ people. Could it lead there? I mean, theoretically, it could. I mean, if someone says, I I have this view that interracial marriage is wrong, or I have this view that Seventh-day Adventists are evil, and so I don't want to work with Seventh-day Adventists, that's possible would come within the scope of the court's ruling. The court simply did not delimit carefully the scope of its decision by saying there has to be exceptions to these public accommodations law. And I think that we can all imagine how frightening it would be if from builders to restaurateurs to caterers could simply refuse to cater to particular clients because of a perceived disagreement with their philosophies or religions. And there was another decision last week involving religion that didn't get as much attention because of the week that it was. So this involved a part-time fill-in postal worker who doesn't want to work on Sundays for religious reasons. And in this latest religious confrontation case, the Supreme Court has solidified protections for workers who ask for religious accommodations. Gerald Groff quit when the post office would not accommodate his request to be off on Sundays for religious reasons. And then he sued the post office. Groff told ABC News it was important to him. I told my supervisor it's the Lord's day, it's not the Lord's morning. It's not supposed to be like the other six days of the week. Why not just pick a different job that allows you to work on different hours and different days? I didn't really think I should have to quit. I really expected the post office to find a way to accommodate me. How tell us about his case. So the postal worker became a Sabbath observer on a Sunday and told the post office, his employer, that he wanted to have Sundays off for a religious observance. And they try to accommodate him in various ways by agreeing to swap shifts. I and mean, occasionally the postmaster himself would deliver the mail. And it worked out until Amazon made an agreement with the Postal Service to serve parcels on Sunday so that their work picked up a great deal and these shift swaps were no longer sufficient. So the employee complained and refused to go to work on Sunday. His superiors did not make any further accommodations. He was subject to discipline. Eventually, then, he resigned, and he claimed he was forced to resign, basically, because they wouldn't accommodate his religious Sabbath observance. And this case requires an assessment of what is the extent of an employer's duty to accommodate a sincere religious observance. And the court unanimously held that the standards used by at least some courts of appeals had been too employer-friendly. Some of the courts of appeals, including the Third Circuit in this case, had looked to language in a prior Supreme Court case called TWA versus Hardison, which said that any kind of cost above de minimis would be considered to be an undue burden upon the employer. And not all courts use the standard, but some did. Other courts look to different language in the same TWA versus Hardison case to have a more demanding standard on the employer, that the employer couldn't just refuse to accommodate based upon some kind of minimal expenses in terms of overtime pay or 
not agreeing to give swap shifts or something along those lines. And tell us about the court's decision. So the Supreme Court unanimously decided that an undue burden means more than just de minimis expense, rather that it must result in the words of the Supreme Court in the substantial increased costs. Now, it's a little vague. The court hasn't clarified exactly what what are substantial increased costs, but the court did give a couple of different guidelines. The court said that the employer can respect a bargain for seniority rights. It doesn't have to infringe upon seniority rights. That would be a undue burden or substantial costs. The court also said that it's not enough for the employer to show that other employees don't like it. The court made a very fine distinction here. What they said is that just because another employee doesn't like the fact that someone's religion is being accommodated, doesn't like the fact that somebody gets Sundays off to go to church while they want to stay home with family, that's not sufficient. Rather, the fine line drawn by the court is when the impact on other employees becomes so great as to burden the ability of the employer to actually conduct the business, then that would be an undue burden under Title VII, and the employer doesn't have to go beyond that. The other thing that the court clarified is that having to pay overtime to other employees to pick up the shift, that's not an undue burden in itself. Maybe at some point it would be, but just by having to pay some kind of overtime, that wouldn't be demanding. And indeed, in this case, it's not clear that any kind of, of overtime would have been that significant in the long run. The court remanded it back to the Third Circuit to decide under this slightly more stringent standard than the court had used below. So well, unclear in my mind how the Third Circuit will resolve it on remand. This is a case where there was tension in the postal office where Groff worked because of what was happening, and they did have to pay overtime. Is the court clear on what else you would need to create an undue hardship? I mean, that sounds like the business is really being affected by this. Yeah, the court was not clear. And the the part that I, as a (laughs) past employer, sort of wonder is how do you draw a line between a disgruntled employee staff and a staff that's not being productive because they're upset with these distractions? And when is that an impact on a business as opposed to just having an impact upon employees? The two seem to me to be on the same continuum. And I think maybe it's just a matter of articulation that the Postal Service in this case would have to say, you know, not only did our employees not like the fact that we're giving this benefit to one of their own, but rather that they, they started having fights, uh, they started losing focus on their responsibilities, they didn't come to work in protest, and we were unable to continue our operations as smoothly as possible. That's the line I think that the court is demanding that the employers say, not just that employees didn't like it, like a heckler's veto, but rather that it so affected the employees' cohesiveness and work that they were not able to function as a as a good post office should. Yeah, Justice Alito said the employer must show the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. Well, how do you define substantial? That's going to be fleshed out in the courts of appeals below. And this is not that different of a standard than what some courts of appeals had used 
but some courts, again, just latched on to that de minimis language in the prior Supreme Court case to give employers a relatively easy pass in terms of the duty to make an accommodation. So clearly this is a more stringent standard. Employers will have to give slightly broader accommodations than they have in the past, but the extent of the difference is really difficult to gauge at this point. Is it surprising that this was a unanimous decision? I don't think it was surprising. I think that it was left so vague that the new standard could grab everyone's approval. And I think there was a consensus that the more than de minimis standard that some courts had used was too loose, was too pro-employer. So the court was able to agree unanimously that the standard would have to be toughened to a little extent, but the question is how much of an extent, and we just don't know because the language of substantial impact on an employer, substantial costs, is very difficult in the abstract to identify. During the arguments, the postal worker's lawyer said, under the government's test, a diabetic employee could receive snack breaks under the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, but not prayer breaks under Title VII. Does this equate snack breaks for a diabetic employee with prayer breaks for a religious employee? Well, the court was was clear that it would not adopt any standards under the American Disabilities Act in this opinion, but I think it does suggest that an employer would have to, you know, think twice before they said no prayer breaks because in some workplaces you could take short prayer breaks without having it really affect the smooth operation of a plant, but in some a short prayer break would actually cause the entire assembly process to break down. So it again, it would be a context-specific determination of what the impact of the prayer break would have on the operations of the employer. And it'll give lawyers for employers more reason to collect evidence and assess how an employer needs to run the business more than they did before. So the, the duty will be or the burden will be on employers to come up with reasons why they can't allow someone to take a prayer break or can't allow someone to stay at home on a Sunday. So last term we had the high school football coach who insisted on praying right after a game on the 50-yard line, and the Supreme Court okayed that. I can't remember the last time a case with religious implications was denied by this court. Now, this court clearly is far more in favor of having large space for religious observance than prior courts were. And we're going to see a school funding case next term, which will manifest this to even a greater extent. Because to the extent that we have now charter schools that can be religious, we are having direct funding of religious schools in a way that we only permitted indirect funding before. But that's for a future court. Uh, This term, I don't think this case came out as a surprise because, as you mentioned, the trend has been towards greater need to accommodate and respect religious observances of all in society has been a feature of this court, and it sort of unites both the left and the right to some extent. Do you think that we're seeing the, you know, crumbling of the line between church and state? In many people's mind, we, we are seeing that the, the clarity between the two certainly has, has watered down, and 
this idea of an establishment clause has been changed somewhat re- remarkably in the past couple of terms because the court is not so wary of government mixing with religion. And I think that usually means, unfortunately, that the dominant religion gets most of the breaks. In the last week of the term, the Supreme Court's conservative majority ended affirmative action, struck down President Joe Biden's student loan relief plan, and dealt a setback to LGBTQ rights. And this is at a time when the court has its lowest approval ratings, and many Americans are questioning the court and its authority. And there are the ethical concerns that have been raised lately about Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. And the justices, of course, are not held to account. So are the conservatives sort of fearless now in pursuing their agenda? Well, particularly the decisions in the last week of the term, I think, have such shivers up the spine of many individuals who are concerned about the drift of the court. I will note that there have been some glimmerings in prior cases where the majority and dissent was not simply based upon a conservative liberal divide. The court came together with respect to religious accommodations for the postal worker. The court came together with respect to the Biden administration's needed discretion in enforcement of the immigration laws. And of course, the Voting Rights Acts, the court came together for that as well. So there have been some cases where we think that the strong conservative liberal divide isn't dispositive. But certainly in the last three big cases, affirmative action, the gay rights case, as well as student loans, that 6-3 fracture appears way too deeply. And it's usually in the cases involving culture war issues that we see that strong 6-3 to three conservative liberal divide. No, I, I think that's right. Though, again, you know, there are indeed, there was a, just about a united court in terms of the Clean Water Act, how to understand what is waters of the United States. And again, there is a unanimity in terms of the religious employees need to get accommodated under Title VII. But when you talk about affirmative action, when you talk about LGBTQ, and we talk about this major questions doctrine, that's where the conservative liberal divide seems all too uh, ensconced in concrete. And I'm wondering if there are cracks in the relationships between the justices, because justices, when they feel strongly about their dissents, read from the bench. And this week, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, two days in a row, read her dissent from the bench. And in her dissents this week, she didn't say, I respectfully dissent, just I dissent. And you also saw the sort of dueling concurring and dissents by the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and the oldest justice, or the longest on the court, Clarence Thomas, over affirmative action. Are we starting to see, you know, the disagreements that they've maybe been able to keep under wraps come to the surface? I think there's a great deal of frustration amongst the justices. And again, I was somewhat shocked to see the animosity spill over between Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan in the student loans case, because they had had a somewhat better relationship than some of the other justices. So it's, it's going to be a challenge to get this court to work together and to be convivial. And I guess there's reason for mild optimism, but 
also reason for real continued pessimism that that's going to happen. I suppose they have the summer to sort of cool down. Thanks so much for your analysis, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.